I want you to open your Bible to Psalms 51. We've been there for a little while. We'll probably stay there for a little while. There's a lot there. Psalms 51, the king's fall and loss, for lack of a better title, is what I've titled these messages. For it is a psalm that describes a king's fall, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a man who had written many psalms. He has made me glad, he was able to say. He has made me glad. He's filled my heart with this and that. And he fell. He committed an adulterous sin. And he tried to hide it by causing a man to die. Terrible sin. And he fell into this gloom as he should. Sin is not a thing you live with. Sin is not a thing that we should ever be comfortable with. But people that have never known a release from sin and what it's like to be free and forgiven don't understand that. Most people just learn to live with it, do the best they can in a sinful state. But David had known what it was like to have a relationship with God. He was able, as a warrior, to ask God what he should do, and God would speak back to him. I don't know how he spoke or how he knew all of that, but... The Lord would say go, or the Lord would say do this. So here's a man that has that kind of a relationship. And now we come to Psalm 51, where his sin has been exposed by Nathan, the prophet. And David, who had no doubt been experiencing less than joy in his life, was able to realize the depth and the greatness of his sin. He was not able to get over it. As he wrote in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 51, he said, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In this modern age of Christianity, we like to think that sin is no big deal. Just say, I'm sorry and walk on. But it seemed like, and we'll get into this more probably next week, but it seemed like there's much more to this than just saying I'm sorry. There is more involved in a grieving and a broken heart than just saying, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And David was able to say, my sin is ever before me. And the one thing he goes on to mention that we're talking about now, and I want to pick it up where we left off the last time, back in verse 12, he begins, there's 11 things he lists that are just lacking in his life from verse 8, make me to hear joy. He's not hearing joy anymore. You can't in a sinful state. You have to seek for joy or that kind of experience that everybody wants. There's not a soul that lives in this world that doesn't want what he calls joy, who doesn't want a relief or a release from gloom and doom. People commit suicide because of gloom and doom. People live miserable lives because of gloom and doom. Here was a man that had known the other side. Now he's in a gloom and doom situation. And he said, and he said, Lord, make me to, make me to hear joy again. Make me to know what it's like to have a cheerful countenance and a great outlook for tomorrow and have a good, kind word for somebody and be able to, to not dread anything. 
I don't have that. He goes on to say, Create in me a clean heart, cast me not away. But verse 12, what we're talking about, restore unto me. Restore means bring it back again. I've known it. I don't have it. It's not there, but Lord, I want that. I single that out as one of my greatest needs as a person, as a father, a leader, whatever you are. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, the joy of your saving ways, the joy of the acknowledgement of your deliverance and your release and help and loving me and doing and covering my tracks and, and protecting. Lord, everything that identifies your saving ways, I'm not experiencing it anymore. My life is quite dismal. There's not much pop in my walk and joy and all of that. See, your sin, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. You can't sin without realizing one day that you're a sinner. And once you do, the effect that's supposed to have on you, we'll get into it another time, but it's supposed to bring you to a place of repentance. There's so many people in this world, and I'm afraid in the church, that has never had a revelation of Jesus Christ. They've heard about him. They've imagined him. They've painted a picture in their mind about what he must have been like or all the stories that we have in the Bible about him, but I don't know how many people have ever had that spiritual experience, that divine moment in which Jesus reveals himself to you as the Almighty God, as the Savior, the Redeemer, the lover of your soul. And I think when he does, it is an experience which should be like the publican's experience. He could not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven because all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our ugliness was against him. We have ignored him, excluded him, satisfied ourselves that we know him because we read about him and that's enough. And yet, when he does reveal himself to those who truly do turn away from their sins, life takes on a whole new meaning. And one of the central things in that new life is joy. Far too many people have no joy in their life. They have a moment of happiness. Something happens and they're happy. It doesn't matter what happens. Joy is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Joy in Galatians 5 is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what comes forth from God. It's what he does. In spite of the Nero's garden and the crucifixion and the martyrs had joy, they went joyfully to their death knowing they have a better resurrection. There's something about joy that lifts anybody that has it up out of the dullness and the deadness of this world and gives meaning to your life. And David said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I asked this question the last time where we were ended. What quality of life do any of us have without joy? Now, we all face experiences that want to weight us down. Everybody does. We don't deny that. Life is full of 
He said, you will suffer persecution and tribulation and hardship and as a soldier fight and having done all stand. And, and we know they're going to be assaulted in this life. But the Bible says, count it all joy. Remember that, James 1, count it all joy when you encounter all that stuff? Well, you won't count it joy unless, this is not the way I want this word to mean, but unless you have vision. Remember the Bible said where there is no vision? Unless you cannot see beyond right now, if you can't see something in front of you worth getting that you really believe you're going to get, chances are it's just a, I don't know, it sounded good, it looked good, but I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger dragging through this world of woe. There's not much of a testimony to that. In Hebrews 10, it said, when they experienced the loss of all things, they rejoiced. In Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were beaten because of their message of who Jesus is, they were beaten, and the Bible says they rejoiced that they were worthy of such a thing. At least they were known to have a testimony that this is what we believe, this is who we are. Praise the Lord. We know where we're going when this life is over. If I die today, I know where I'll be in a few minutes. They had that. There was something that they had that they could look forward to that was greater than all of life's troubles. And life is full of troubles. Let me tell you something. I also believe joy is a choice. You can be gloomy if you want to. You can be despondent if you want to. You can be down in the dumps if you want to. It's ordinary. It happens all the time. Or you can choose to be joyful. You can choose to put a smile on your face. You can. Or you can let the world get to you. And you can let stuff overwhelm you if you want to. It just depends on where your heart is. Or you can honor God and say, Lord, I'm going to rejoice. Not because I feel good, not because I am the greatest conversation on Facebook. But I'm going to rejoice because I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that what I've committed to you, you're going to take care of that. And in the meantime, if I go through all of this, I'm going to go through it with a smile. Where are these people? The Bible describes them like that. When you're persecuted, Peter said, when they persecute you here and they persecute you there, rejoice, First Peter. Rejoice. This is going to happen to you. But this is your testimony. This is why people in the world who have no joy, who try to find some relief from pressure through drugs or alcohol or some other means, they see you not needing any of that stuff, and they look at you and they say, and the Bible says, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of this hope that is within you. Hope is what you're looking forward to. It's yet to come. You know it's going to happen. And you've got this certainty in your heart, this assurance that what you have latched on to will become a visible reality. It's going to happen. Praise the Lord. But rejoice that your names are written where? In the meantime, while you're on the earth, doom, 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 doom. But Jesus said, rejoice. There's something coming.
there's something, if you believe it, you've got something to look forward to that supersedes all this trouble and all this mess that is on this earth. Now, turn to Hebrews 12, because this is where we ended. Hebrews 12, in verse 2, it said, Looking unto Jesus, this is talking about us who are being assaulted, as I just described, in this world. And it says, looking unto Jesus. This is our solution. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Unless you be weak and faint and weary in your minds, he said in verse 3, and you have a tendency to give up and quit and mope and moan, consider Jesus. Consider him. Look at the story, the portrayal of Christ in Scripture. Look at the way he handled all of the adversity in his life. He never gave up. We never see him crying. We never see him whining. We never see him looking for some help somewhere. He never set his disciples down on some hillside and said, boys, I'm at the end of my line. I need some help. He never said that. He was always equipped. He always had a something. Now, the thing we're looking at in verse 2 is the motivation for his overcoming anything and everything and never yielding to sin was the joy that was set before him. There was something in front of him. There was something out there that had not yet been realized, but he knew it would be realized. And it was such a magnificent thing, such a wonderful thing that he was going to do that would happen if he did his job. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to save sinners. And he knew that Fulfilling that mission that he had in this life would bring forth something that was so powerful of an influence in his life. The Bible said he endured the cross. I don't think we can relate in this age to dying on a cross. Unless you stop and ponder it and think about it, what it must have been like to drive those spikes in your hands and hang there sagging, you push up on your feet, the nails, you know, on your feet, and you try to pull yourself up, you got this weight, and you're sagging there, and you're dying. It's just a matter of time until you die a slow, all-afternoon dying death, until you finally are done, until you finally die. You lose your breath, and you die. I don't think we can relate to that much, but Jesus was willing to do that because of the joy that was set before him. Whoa. What if we had something set before us that had such a powerful influence on our lives? We could walk through the same trials and tribulations. He was tempted in all points like we are, wasn't he? We could handle them the way he did if we had what he had before him. It's worth at least a message. It's worth a sermon here anyway. He had this joy. This motivation that he was willing to give up his life for it. To accomplish what was set before him, to realize it, and to obtain it, he was willing to die for me and you. 
Wow. And it's hard for us, if you're willing to admit it, to live every day for him. And yet he was willing to die every day for you. Why? He said the joy that was set before him. Wow. So the question we're asking then is, what is this joy that's set before him? What was the power of this joy that was set before Jesus? Because if he had it, maybe something is set before us that should have the same effect. Is that possible? Are you in Hebrews 12? Look down in verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. You all know what chastening is. That's God's corrective measures. Whatever he does to correct you, either with a word or with a situation or a moment. Chastisement at no time is joyful. If you enjoy chastisement, you need deliverance. But you cannot avoid chastisement either because he chastises or corrects every son that he receives. And it doesn't seem to be joyous, but go on. But grievous, nevertheless, afterwards, this chastisement yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, many quit and get out of it, but there are some who stay with it and experience this. Verse 12, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knee, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see God. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. But this is another message, but bitterness, bitterness kills joy. Because bitterness is something that seethes in the heart. A memory that never is gotten rid of, an experience that conquers your thoughts and your thinking. Well, you're living in an age of bitterness. Have you noticed how angry the world is? How impatient the world is? How fearful and just angry and mad the world is? Whether you're in a traffic situation or in a restaurant, people are just angry. And if you come along and you're joyful, they think you're the village idiot. I mean, they, they, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you mad and why aren't you packing heat to kill somebody? Why are you so happy? What's wrong with you? And if you said, well, I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to make everything, at least for me, make it turn out the way he said he would. Because you see, I have vision. God has set before me too, like you. And we'll get to this in just a minute. God has set before me something worth living for. Something worth achieving. Cannot be found in a school, cannot be found in, in any kind of academics or any kind of hustle or relationship or drug. What is set before me cannot be bought, cannot be earned. It's a gift. It's a gift from the Almighty God who upon his revelation to us becomes to us everything beyond what you ever thought a man could have or be in this life. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take possessions. It just takes a revelation. And from that point on, 
You cast all your care over on him. You trust him with all of your heart. You learn to lean not to your own understanding because something has been shown you that is greater than your troubles in this life. What was the joy set before Jesus? What was the joy set before Jesus that motivated him? Let me give you two things. There's probably more, but let me give you two things. One was that he was going to eliminate the power of sin in this world. He was going to eliminate the devil's power to make sinful or keep sinful or occupy all of mankind. He was going to become our redeemer. Would you look for just a minute? Put your finger here in Hebrews and look in Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Did he see that? Now think about it. This was a heavenly father's goal to deliver us from our sin. Otherwise, he has to judge all of his creation, all of his created beings. They have to be judged because sin separates, Isaiah 59 in verse 2, sin separates us from God. It cuts us off. And all have sinned. And God didn't create us to be a bunch of throwaways. He made us for himself. As Revelation said, and for thy pleasure, we are created. So in his desire to deliver us from the power of sin that separates us from him, he sent his lamb. The whole law describes, you know, the sacrificial system and the lamb and the blood and the perfect pure lamb. It couldn't be sick and flawed in any way. And he sent his own son. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He sent Jesus, who was willing to not only submit himself to God, but to subscribe to everything God required of him to be this perfect lamb. And he did it, even to the death of the cross. He did it all. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, look at him. Look unto Jesus. Lift up those hands that hang down. You haven't resisted sin to the shedding of your blood, have you? I mean, he started in the garden with just the agony of the garden when great drops of blood fell from him. I mean, you talk about agony. It was a tense moment. Stress, more than I could ever imagine, that blood would actually come out of your skin, mingle with sweat and fall to the ground. He was wrestling. The writer of Hebrews said, you haven't struggled against your sin like that, have you? He did, but he didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. That was you he was suffering for. That was you that he was willing to die for. And God's goal in verse 14 was, he said, in whom, in this lamb, Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. And in the same chapter, verse 20 and 22, it said, and having made peace, through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. 
Nobody else, no other th anything could have ever done that. Not only were we like sheep gone astray, but the whole human race was doomed. A righteous God had only to look at us and say, hell was made for people like you. We're all doomed. Nobody has a chance except Jesus did what he did. Except Jesus paid the price that he paid. And yet that was God's will. This was what God wanted. Isaiah 53 said it pleased God to bruise him. Remember that? We esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted. I mean, yeah, well, he deserved all that. He said he was this. This was part of the plan. And he, up from the grave he arose and... When God raised him from the dead, the whole world had to put their hand over their mouth and stand back. Even the scoffers today who don't want to even think that's possible cannot help that uneasy feeling they have about the fact that he's alive. All of history testifies to it. From the calendar you go through, probably, to the most copied book in the world, they can't get rid of Jesus. God has made sure that this lamb has left his imprint on all of humankind on the whole planet earth. And you can try to reject that and escape from that and say, I don't need that. I'm not too sure about that. All you want to. But there is something in your heart that won't let you be free thinking like that. It pricks your heart. You can die like that too. And then the sad thing about dying is, that when all this offered, all the lamb went to prepare a place for us and offered us an eternal life with Jesus Christ. And I don't know about that because we're too cool in this world. We're trying to be ourselves and, and make a big life and be famous and rich and all that. And it comes to an end like a vapor of smoke. And you have to stand before a righteous God and say, based on what you chose, based on your actions and deeds, in spite of what I said to you, you chose to live your own way. Therefore, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Is that fair? Absolutely. Think of it. Everybody who could be judged. Right now, this world's full of people that are going to be judged. And the way to heaven has been revealed. Jesus said, you're not willing to come. You don't want to come because you don't want to give up your life. You don't want to give up rights to being who you are, who you think you are. So consequently, when Judgment Day takes place and sinners stand before an angry God and experience what David wrote about in Psalm 102 in one of his penitential psalms, and he said, Thou hast been angry and full of wrath. Thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. Because sin cannot be tolerated by God. So when Jesus, I think he saw before him, as he said in Colossians, he saw our redemption. Go back to Hebrews. He saw our redemption, the release of us from our sins. To coming down here and taking somebody whom God had to judge in an awful, awful place. And be able now, because of his resurrection and the sin question has been removed, then to come and reveal himself to Isaac. 
You say, Isaac, I've come to save you. And then only what God can do is to cause you to realize that. If you don't realize that, yeah, well, good, I, not right now. But when you realize that, this is that divine moment and that divine godly sorrow that causes repentance. And a man receives Jesus, and he falls on his face, and he groans, and he cries, and he weeps, because his whole life has been one constant offense to God. And he's changed. He never goes back to his sin because God has turned him around. He struggles along the way. He has to learn and overcome his sinfulness and his past. But he will. He will. And he'll keep going. And he'll hold fast. And while there are struggles in his life, you'll find him able to say, praise God. I know this is going to work. Because when Jesus reveals himself to us, I think he brings a picture. I have come. That you might have what? Life. Don't you think Jesus saw that that's what's going to happen to this boy whenever he did what he did? Think of all the people that are going to be rescued from eternal death. Look at all the people that God is going to save because of what Jesus did. Jesus did what he did, and as a result, everybody that believes in him, responds to him, he's going to save them. You don't have to perish. You can have eternal life. I'm going to go prepare a place for you so you can live with me forever. It'll never be old. You'll never be same old, same old in heaven. Oh, you can't even conceive or perceive or think and know what I have gone to prepare for you. I've come to save you. Who for the joy that was set before him made that possible. I praise the Lord. I thank you, Jesus, this morning for what you have done and for what you're doing. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is a common theme here. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. Who is the brightness of his glory? Jesus. Well, he goes on to say it. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Allow me for... 30 seconds. God is spirit. God is not a spirit. God is spirit. He's called the invisible God. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. When you see Christ, you see him. He is God. As he says here, he is, in verse 3, the express image or imprint of his person or who God is. And being that, it says, and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't you think he looked forward to that? To being restored back to where he was? That's what he said in... Hebrews 12, 2 said, uh, and he's seated at the right hand of his father. Jesus believed this was going to happen. He had faith. Remember, he was also a man. He was tempted. You can't tempt God, but you can tempt man. Well, he was the son of man. He had to go through the same experiences that we go through. 
We can't relate to somebody who is spirit or somebody out there that's not like us, but he became like us. Look in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that is, he flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him or paralyze him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Don't you think he looked forward to that? Jesus, you mean to tell me that all you went through, that was what you saw, that that was worth all your struggles? Yep. Jesus, we're all a bunch of heathen sinners. Yep. I don't think God would say yep, but that's a modern word, yep. But look at us, Lord. We live like we don't care if you exist or not. All we want is to have a an hour in church to feel better about ourselves and then go our own way. We want us a preacher to tell us everything's all right. And we've ignored you. Why would you die for us? Because, first of all, it was God's will. And secondly, because what you don't know now, you will know one day when I reveal myself to you, and then it'll change your whole life. You begin to see things as they really are. And life will have purpose and life will have meaning at that time. God will do that for us. For as much then as we are partakers of flesh and blood, so did he, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. Remember that other verse? I know you will. You'll remember this. In Matthew chapter 25, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but this verse of Scripture that said this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Y'all remember that? You've heard that many times. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, this is what Matthew 25 and verse 21 goes on to say. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. What was the joy of thy Lord? The fact that the way for you to enter in and experience it and share it with him through all eternity, that was his joy. You with him. Him being your redeemer. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by church membership in water baptism. No, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child. And forever I am. That's a song. But Jesus realized that his mission on life in accomplishing that would bring that to pass. It would please God. Every time a sinner now gets saved, the Bible says, in the presence of the angels in heaven, there is joy. Joy. Joy and exuberance. Genuine expression of yes. Joy, or, praise the Lord, joy. Something in my heart like a stream running free makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and what he's done for me, 
Oh, something in my heart like a stream running free, and I'm so glad, and so forth. You know, it really isn't hard to worship if you have the joy of the Lord. Do you know that it's easy to unfold your arms and put your hands together if you have the joy of the Lord? If you're religious, and that's about the extent of it, that's about all you have. I mean, if you're just religious, then that's about it. If you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. You would agree to that. Well, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But anyway, joy. Jesus knew this was going to happen. Let me tell you another thing. Jesus was looking forward to the restoration back to the throne with his father. Now, I want you to turn to John 17. John 17 and verse 25. In this high priestly prayer that is called in the garden. John 17, the last moments with his disciples before his crucifixion. Where he prayed some wonderful things in John 17. Well, he said in verse 5, he said, And now, O Father, glorify Thou me, listen to this, glorify thou me with what? And now, O Father, glorify thou me with you. How do you compute that? Lord, glorify me with you, with yourself. You glorify me. But he also said in John 17, you know, I want your people to be like you and I are. You're in me and I'm in you and we're one. That's called unity. And I want them to be one with us. That's pretty high level oneness. With God, with Christ, in that crowd, by their invitation, and by his doing. But anyway, he said, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Personally, I think Jesus enjoyed and look forward to being back where he had been as a creator. For all things were created by him, the Bible says. And given the choice of living in a, a sea of humanity, living in the days of his flesh, as opposed to being on the throne, I think he would rather be on the throne. I also think it wouldn't matter to Jesus as long as he was doing the will of his father, the will of God. And again, theologically, that's, some of that's hard to sort out, but I believe that. The Bible said in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus is gone into heaven, angels and principalities being made subject to him, and the restoration of the power of all creation given back to him. Remember what he said when he came into the upper room after his crucifixion and the disciples were all afraid, and he just appeared. Boom, there he is. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth is what? Given to me. It's back where it should be. The power has been broken. The keys of death and hell have been removed. He no longer is the boss over lost humanity. A way now has been made for escape. And a faithful God has sent his word through the world to save man. It's possible now. Be of good cheer, he said in John 16, I've overcome the world. 
Well, good for you? No. What does that mean? I did it like you can do it, for I am like you. In the days of my flesh, I faced everything you face. I conquered it. So can you. You just need a revelation of Jesus Christ and a heart that embraces all of that and a willingness to live, not for yourself, but for him. For you were bought with the price. Your life is not your own. It belongs to him now. God, teach me thy ways, O Lord. Why? That I may what? Walk in thy truth. Unite my heart. This is a process. This is working out my salvation, which is a process. Unite my heart to fear your name. What a game changer that is. I'll praise you, Lord God. Where he leads me, I will follow. Jesus is back on his throne. He is back where he was. He knew one day he would come back to there. He was trusting God for that. And you know what it says? Listen to this. Thou will show me the path of life in thy presence. This is a messianic verse. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Don't we sing that? In thy presence there's fullness of joy. At thy right hand pleasures forevermore. Oh, what fellowship divine and so forth. Think of it. In the presence of the Lord, there is joy forevermore. Would that also be true of Psalm 91? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Is that also where his presence is? Then it, would I be scripturally correct in saying that if we are in his presence, then his joy is also in his presence, and his joy should be our joy. I mean, if he is in me, and I am in him, and we are one, then whatever he is that I am partaking of should be evident or manifest in me, should it? Of course. Well, then why isn't it? Then why don't we see it all over the church? I would write it on the board, sin. You see, sin is a choice, and joy is a choice. Nobody makes you sin. You sin because you wanted to. Nobody makes you rejoice. You rejoice because you want to. It's choices. And all the things we've been taught that we've learned to take for granted have just kind of taken its toll. Well, I don't feel good today, and I don't want to be a hypocrite by raising my hands. I didn't have a good day yesterday, and so, you know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say, praise the Lord, when I really don't feel that. Oh, oh, okay. So you don't believe in a sacrifice of praise. That's like going before the Lord on, on a, taking a sacrifice, one of your lambs before God, and say, well, I don't feel like going to the altar today. When the lamb, you know, I didn't have a good day yesterday, and this lamb's not feeling good anyway has nothing to do with it. How you feel has nothing to do with it. I preached a really good message in here the other day. What are you laughing at? I was by myself. I see, you might, well, it probably wasn't if you preached it. It was to me. 
You know what it was about? About why we sin. It just came a thought I was going through here, and I, I stopped right here. Got up here and preached to y'all. I stood right there, actually. And preached. Oh, I kind of went up the aisles and looked at you. Boy, liberty. When you're by yourself, there's liberty. Boy, you can get in somebody's face. Call them by their name. They won't leave and won't quit. Send you a bad note. They don't do that. You know what I said? Maybe that's why I said all this. We sin because by nature we're rebels. A rebel says, well, I know I should, but I don't want to. Well, lift up your hands and hang. I don't want to. How do I know you don't want to? Because you didn't. Am I okay with this? You're not, I am. We are by nature rebels. We have been trained by this world, by the educational system, the world system, our friends, to do what we want to do, to do your own thing, do it your own way. That's called iniquity. That's why the love of many will grow cold in the last day and the world becomes angry because of iniquity and self-serving people. We're all for God as long as he does something now. We're all for God if he delivers me from this and keeps me well. Do it now. And if he doesn't do it, it's his fault. That's the age you're in. And I got to preaching about that. Boy, it was coming out so good. I enjoy the more I preach, preach to me. At you. It's just by nature we're rebels. I thought of a verse in Ephesians 2. It says that we were by nature children of disobedience. We're naturally like that. We're made, we're born like that. From our mother's womb, we were born. We go astray. The Bible says a sinner goes astray as soon as he's born. And he fights this word of God that says, surrender. I don't want to surrender. I got a lot to offer the world. I got a lot to live for. And I'm going to be and I'm going to do and I'm important. Jesus said, die, give it up. You can't live forever like that. Now, I'm, I'm going to take my chances, man. I'm, I go to church. I've been baptized. I'm all right. And it gets colder and colder and colder until one day you've turned God all the way off, and so he has to turn you off. It wasn't his idea. It was your idea. Boy, we cut ourselves off from so much. What do you suppose the joy was? that was set before us. Is there a joy set before us? In closing, let me give you a twofold reason why there is joy or about the joy that is set before us too. Remember Jesus said, Jesus said in John 15, he said this, number one, he said, these things, now listen to me, these things have I spoken unto you would that be his preaching? Somebody help me now. These things, he said, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Now, wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Jesus said, what I'm saying, the words that I'm giving you, this message that's been recorded, you've got a copy of it in your lap. As much of it as God wants us to know, you have it. That's not all God ever said, but that's what he wanted you to know. 
And he said, these things I have spoken unto you that my joy might be in you. Now, what if we step back and say, Lord, that's not working. That's not working. We hear this all the time. We hear the word all the time. We're not joyful all the time, but we hear the word all the time. We don't have this expression of, of glee or blithesomeness. What a word. Or cheerfulness. We don't have that all the time. We hear the word. We may read it through the week. So we got a lot of the entrance of thy words, but not a whole lot of outwardness of response to its content. It's like we know you said it, but in light of the world and what's going on in the world and I don't see much to be joyful about. You know why? I have no vision. All he said hasn't formed in our hearts and our minds that something out there that is to be, that's something that's going to happen. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen, but for those who can see it, it becomes something you focus on. It's vision. You begin to see what the Lord is saying. What he has promised you. And at John 17, a while ago, he said, in verse 13, he said, In these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now that's twice he said, I say these things so that the joy that I have can be yours. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, he said, These things I write unto you that your joy may be full. Full, yeah, like in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Yes, these things I have spoken unto you, Jesus said, that your joy may be full, that you might have my joy. You are my representatives on this earth. You are my ambassadors. I put my spirit in you. Christ in you is the very hope, focus, vision of glory. It's Christ. One day he's coming. Yeah, we heard that too. No, he's coming. Not for a bunch of growling, groveling, moaning people, but he's coming for those who have his word living. L-I-V-I-N-G, living and abiding. A word that is dwelling and having an effect upon his people. A word that is causing the joy of the Lord to be their strength in their trials, in their moments, in not failing and flailing and giving up and quitting because I got, I got a vision. I got something I can look forward to. Jesus said that he would do what he said, which the second part of our joy is faith. His faith. The faith that you have, if it works spiritually, it is his faith. It's a gift. Did you know that God gives us faith? Did you know that you could not believe in what God says if he didn't give you faith to believe it? Otherwise, it would be a natural thing to believe. It's not a natural thing to believe. It's natural to believe in the world. You believe in trees and buildings and sun and you know, just believe in stuff. But you can't believe spiritual things without faith. You can acknowledge them. You can say, I agree with the Bible that it's true. That doesn't mean you believe it. 
You can be a preacher and preach the very deeper things of God and not believe it. It's something you should do or something you've learned to do, something you can do. It doesn't mean you believe it. It doesn't mean that it has its effect upon you. You can gather to yourself all kinds of biblical facts and, and become a biblical encyclopedia. That doesn't mean you believe it. That means you know what it says, but that doesn't mean you believe it. It's easy to be religious and not spiritual. It's easy to access a lot of, well, a, a Bible church you go to where they preach the Bible. That's good, and it's, and it's proper. But going there does not mean because you're there, you believe it. I look back in my own life at the, we call it the faith camp. It's kind of now just a little fireplace, but... I look back from many years ago at the faith camp I came out of when so many people professed it. They confessed it. They acknowledged it. They whoop and hollered about it. But it didn't last. The vision failed. Something replaced their whatever it was. They lost their vision. They began to scatter, fall away, drift, and go some other direction. And their life took on a pattern of the way they used to live. I used to call it a 20-mile circle. If you were walking a 20-mile circle, the line looks straight. I would think, I've never done this. But if you could draw a 20-mile circle, I'm sure as you look, look down at that line, it probably looks straight. But 20 years later, you're back where you were. You've whooped and hollered for 20 years. You believed nothing. Except why didn't it work for me? How come I can't and pull me and I'm not sure? Blah, blah, blah. blah. Just... The joy of the Lord is my strength. <laughs> do you suppose, listen to me, do you suppose the reason these people had no vision or joy was because they really did not believe his word? This is a little scary to think that you can hear this word all your life. You can acknowledge it, quote it, preach it, run around with people that do it, and be this memory man. And yet, instead of following it, you do things your own way, but you, you satisfy yourself. Hey, Lord, I preached your word. I preached the Bible, Lord. I preached what you said. I cast out demons. I told them to come out. Lord, they came out. And you know what Jesus said to him? He said, I never knew you. I never knew you. Your life did not testify to me. Your life testified to knowledge about me. But it wasn't me. I wasn't the focus of your life because you didn't believe. I mean believe. When I say believe, I mean, I mean believe. You did not see Jesus Christ as the reason for living itself. You did not look at his word and say, this is the way, walk ye in it. You just said, I know who you are, I know what you did. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. But when it came down to who you're trusting in, who you will count on in some of the miserable moments of your life, it wasn't Jesus. 
You went back to the world. You went this way and that way. You didn't want to be embarrassed. You didn't want people to talk about you. So you set aside what you said, hallelujah, and you turned from that, and you went backwards. It was a fear of what man would think of us if we do it God's way. But what if we trust God and it doesn't work and we die? What kind of a testimony is that? We said. Oh, Jesus, it says, listen, I got two or three verses I want you to follow me through and then we'll quit. We'll close. The Bible said that, first of all, Jesus is the author of our faith. Did he say that? Hebrews 12, verse 2. He said that Jesus is the author of our faith. If he is the author, does it mean it came from him? Now, doesn't the Bible also teach us, 1 Thessalonians 2, I think it says, not all men have faith. All men have a belief system. All men have a religious view of things, an idea, and most of them have an opinion, and for them, their opinion is their theology, and they think that if they believe it this way, they're all right. This is another message we got coming called the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. Oh, there's too many people that always think they're right. If they see it a certain way, that's the way it is. And yet it doesn't prove God's word to be true, what they say. So it's the wisdom of man. It's not the wisdom of God. But anyway, we'll save that for a day when everybody's gleeful. But he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, Paul wrote this in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 13. You know, to turn to it. He says, now may the God of hope, that vision, expectation, may the God who gives you that fill you with all joy in believing. What if we don't believe? What if we acknowledge it, quote it, and say, yeah, that's in the Bible. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's as far as we go with it. Well, then it, truthfully, it's really not your vision. Let me give you a carnal vision. You take Isaac here. Isaac doesn't mind me picking on him. He's been here since he's born. I call Isaac into my office before church. I say, Isaac, as soon as church is over this morning, I want you to meet me. I don't want you to do this, but I want you to, no. I want you to come back in my office. I'm going to give you $1,000. Now I can preach the worst sermon he's ever heard. He'll sit there and smile. Because <laughs> he's carnal. No, no, no. Because why? He has, he has a vision. He sees himself with a thousand bucks doing whatever he wants to do with it, which today is not much. It's more than nothing, trust me. Because he has something that supersedes anything else that's going on. But what I said to him wouldn't amount to anything. If he didn't believe it, isn't that right? Now, what if some, uh, let me be nice, let me be real nice. A stranger from off the street came in here, walked up to you and said, after church is over today, what's your name, boy? I said, okay, after church today, you get $1,000 to come out in the parking lot. And he walks out of here. What would he do? Go, wow. He'd probably say, well, huh, who was that? Who was that that made all these promises in the Bible? I mean, uh, who was that that made this promise? He wouldn't be excited. You know why? Because he doesn't know who that was. 
The same is true with Jesus. This is another message too. We'll put them all together today. If we don't know him, then he's just a voice. He's just a, a declaration the Bible gives. He is portrayed in the Bible as, but do I believe he will do for me all those things he said, that he'll supply all of my needs? Well, I just proved the other day, I don't believe that, you might say. I mean, I'll whine and crowd around about being broke. What are we going to do? I don't believe he's going to supply my needs. You see, you've got to have something you believe. Jesus is not going to make you believe, though he could. He will give you faith, but he will encourage you to believe him. Why? Revelation. He'll show himself to you, and you'll go, wow. Wow. I remember one time dancing with my daughter, Judy, I think. Fever, really a bad fever and convulsing. And, and I'm in the dark of the night when the devil usually does his work. The only thing I could think of at the time was counted all joy. You know how dumb that sounds in the middle of the night? That doesn't fit. That doesn't even compute. The wisdom that I would naturally have thinks that's foolishness, but the Bible says they will. So I started dancing back when I had dancing shoes. I began dancing around the kitchen. I still remember this, dancing by the kitchen sink. This joy is joy. Didn't sing real loud. Didn't want to wake the whole neighborhood up. This joy is joy grows and grows. This joy is joy. And I didn't feel, woo! All I felt was, oh, God, I am acting my faith. Because he said, do what? Count it all joy. Well, I don't enjoy it. But he didn't say enjoy it. He said, count it joy. Turn your frown upside down. Put an expression of joy on your face. Act like the promise that he has made to you. He's going to fulfill it, even though it doesn't look like it's ever going to be fulfilled. There's no evidence of it being fulfilled. This child's still hot and, and jerking around in your arms. But he said he would heal her. He said he would. If I believe, and having done all, what do you do? You stand. And so I decided to dance while I was standing. And pretty soon, she quit. It took a while. Just like the work of repentance, it takes a while. We'll get to that later. And she quit. Put her back in her bed. As I've said before, I don't know to this day she's ever even had a fever since then. She probably has. If she has, I don't know it. Do you think... That was a good moment for me when it was over. I don't think Jesus enjoyed the cross, do you? But he believed that if he did what he was going to do, that his father would raise him from the dead. He believed it like you had to believe it. And when I put her down in it, God just showed, that's what you can trust me for. This is after all these years. People thought many times I've been foolish, you're crazy, you're ignorant for not going to a doctor, for not doing this, for not doing that, and not, and not, and not, and not. And I tell them now, 45 years later, which one of them has suffered so bad that you can't see who they are? Which one is flawed and handicapped now? 
We trusted God with all of them. I don't know if they trust the Lord themselves, but we did with them. That's their business, because faith is a choice. But that's what it takes to have joy. You cannot have joy, the joy of the Lord, without faith. You cannot have joy without believing what God said. You can't. Turn to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. This is the principle. This is how it works. Paul writes, Well, this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, that's where the joy comes, remember? My joy. When you receive the word of God with all of its promises that brings your vision, you received it not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God which effectually works in whom? It's not church members. It's not good intentions. It's believers. Believers is not a term of just people who go to church. We call them that because we assume they're believers. But a believer is one who trusts God, who counts on God, who leans not to his own understanding. It's the hardest thing for most of us we'll ever do because we feel so helpless. But sometimes you have to come to the end of your strength so you can trust him to do what he said. Then you know that, wow, it just increases your vision or your hope. And you know that he'll do this for you because he is faithful. Oh, God is good. Unto us, the Bible says, was the good news preached. As well as those in the Old Testament. They heard the good news. But the word they heard, the Bible says, did not profit them. Well, we can relate to that. The word didn't change anything. The word didn't do anything for them like it said it would. The Bible says they heard the word. But the word they heard, he said, did not profit them because they did not mix faith with it. What good is any promise that God has ever made if you don't believe it? If you're trying to hope it works, oh, God, do so. I'll fast and pray more. And do, that's no, no. Not by your efforts. The priest didn't go before God wearing wool. There's no sweating here. This is linen time. This is all of God. This is all of God. And you humble yourself before God who calls those things that be not as though they were. That's what faith does. I'm saying my child is healed while she doesn't look healed. I'm saying the money will come in even though it's past due. I'm saying that God's going to save my child even though my child looks unsavable. I'm taking God at his word. I'm going to shut my eyes to the things I see. I'm going to shut my eyes to all the stuff I have to hear. I'm going to focus my attention upon God and look unto Jesus and count on him to do what he said. This is the Christian life. Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I did eat them. He said, and thy words were unto me the joy 
and the rejoicing of my heart. That's the way it should be. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, minister to us, O Lord. Lord, I stand before a needy people. We have needs here. I pray that we are truly poor in spirit, that we never have too much of it, always need more, always in need of more. But I pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes and reveal yourself to us. Show us who you are. Make us aware. Touch our hearts. Give us the Thomas experience, Lord, where we can say, my Lord and my God. Change our lives. After all these years, Lord, I ask you to change and turn us around to you. I ask you to do it because I know only you can. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.